I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. So this episode, recorded once again at the White House while I was there in Melbourne recently, is with one of the authors of a new book called Choke Point Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labour markets and how we'll win them back, which is quite the title. It's been gushingly reviewed by The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Guardian in the UK, The Conversation, and The New Statesman. And it's been listed as one of the Financial Times' best books of 2022. But I think I might give you a bit of a feel for things by reading the endorsement blurb that was provided by Margaret Atwood. It goes, Are you a writer, a musician, an artist? Is big tech eating your brain and sucking your financial blood? Chokepoint Capitalism tells us how the vampires crash the party and provides protective garlic. Your brain must remain your own concern, however. Finish of quote. So I think this gives a bit of a colourful gist for things. But to be clear, joining me to discuss the mind-blowing contents of the book is Rebecca Giblin, the academic half of the co-author equation. She's a professor at Melbourne Law School, specialising in creators' rights and technology regulation, and she's the director of the Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia. The other half of the duo is Corey Doctorow, a best-selling science fiction writer and creative commons activist based in LA. He also owns the website Boing Boing, which you may have heard of. Now, I'll get Rebecca to explain what choke point capitalism is in a minute, but for the purposes of an effective introduction, the term roughly describes in straight up terms why we, particularly the creatives, but also customers of, well, pretty much everything that is created these days, are feeling screwed over by big tech billionaires. Think the recent Taylor Swift ticker tech debacle, the Google and Facebook surveillance that we have to endure should we want to stay in touch with friends or engage online at any point, that feeds us frighteningly personalised ads, and how the way we listen to and discover music has been totally strangled, like the life choked right out. And I quote from the book, that three massive conglomerates own the three record labels and the three music publishers that control most of the world's music. 
They designed the streaming industry, dominated by Spotify, which itself is or was partly owned by those same three labels. It's an awesome time to be having this chat. I mean, the players that Rebecca refers to in our chat seem to be detecting our pissed offness and are gripping ever tighter. So it's all heating up quite a bit. And I'm particularly interested as an author, as a podcaster, as a Substack newsletter writer and a broadcaster with quite a number of good friends in the music industry who have been feeling choked for some time. But equally, I feel somewhat nervous given that I rely on almost all of the platforms that Rebecca examines for my livelihood. Rebecca and I discuss how we landed here and then all the radical things we can do to stick it back to the Goliaths. What's extraordinary about this book, I should say, is that it is anti-capitalist and totally calls out the big players that control the careers and the advertising dollars of the big publications and reviewers who've cheered the book so gushingly in the last few months, which I think points to how ready we are for this particular revolution. Okay, now it's time to meet Rebecca Giblin. So, Rebecca, have you been surprised by how well the book's been received internationally? Was that on the uh, on the cards at all? I like to say this is my third book, but the first one anyone is actually reading. Um, as an academic, uh, I'm used to working really hard on things that don't necessarily make a big impact. Occasionally they will. I had a, a study that went viral in 2013, which is how I came to meet Corey. Um, but for the most part, you sort of toil away doing work that you a think is... A study that went viral? Can I just ask, what, what was it about? Do you remember there was a while where um, governments around the world were creating laws that required internet service providers to cut off um, people on unsubstantiated allegations of copyright infringement, which seems kind of right. really bonkers now. But in, around that time, there were uh, about seven countries that had these laws and the, the the big media companies were pushing really hard to export them everywhere else as well. And they were making these big claims about how well they were working. And I set out, I was like, that, that doesn't really sound right. Some of these claims that are being made are a bit peculiar to me. So I set out to evaluate all of those claims against all of the evidence and found out there was remarkably little evidence that they were doing anything at all. And um, that, you know, lots of people were fighting against that, but that played a a, a real role in um, making it so that no one ever created another one of these laws after that. And a lot of them have been abolished since, which thank goodness, because imagine that, you know, we we get to COVID, it's very, very clear how important internet access is. And if your ISPs have just like, you know, disconnected everybody on these, you know, really often very low quality, unsubstantiated allegations, then we would have been in even more trouble. Yeah, right. You know, I I listened to podcast, by the way, I'm just going to interject on something completely unrelated, at one and a half speeds, because I listen to a lot of American Mm -hmm. podcasts. I don't think anyone's going to be able to do that with this conversation. You (laughs) and I talk so fast. (laughs) Anyway, so you became internet famous, but then this book has obviously come out and it has done so well internationally. A lot of people are, are loving it you know, and applauding you for it. That's been really, really exciting. And I think the thing that uh, has 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 been the most delightful is seeing people start to use the term choke point capitalism. We coined that to describe this particular phenomenon, which is that um, there, you know, we're, we're told that competition is supposed to be fundamental to capitalism. We're supposed to have these free markets um, with free exchange of value between buyers and sellers. But for the last 40 years that uh, we've been seeing a decline in competition. We see Warren Buffett, 
you know, salivating over companies that have wide sustainable moats, he calls it, i.e. barriers to people coming in and competing away what was supposed to be temporary market advantages. And Peter Thiel saying competition is for losers. That's what's being taught in business schools these days. Don't make something, don't provide a service that people want, but find a way to extract value from the things that other people are actually making and providing. And get rid of all competition. Yeah, get rid of competition as much as you possibly can because those are the conditions that allow you to extract value from other people's labor. And the fact that they've been so successful at it is why, um, you know, so many people, one of the big reasons why so many people are feeling squeezed. And so when people have been emailing us and saying, oh, I've read your book and this is exactly what's happening in my industry. You know, my favorite one is probably the global ornamental plant industry. So this big plant out there doing exactly the same thing. And then, you know, you see on social media, people saying, oh yeah, this is just choke point capitalism and tagging us in. That's really, really exciting because once you understand the problem as being one about, you know, corporate concentration, them creating these hourglass shaped markets where you've got, you know, buyers at one end and sellers at the other and, and them squatting predatorily at the neck, then that opens up new thinking about what we can do about it, which yeah. is really, really exciting. So so I just want to pause on choke point capitalism. I was going to get you to explain it as per how you would explain it to your mum, mm, right? Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. um, but you do have to imagine a bit of a, an hourglass mm-hmm. and you've got at the top, you've got creators mm-hmm. creating art and words and music and they might be script writers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to create this content. And in the past, you had multiple um, vendors or consumers that you could sell to. But essentially choke point capitalism is whereby it's that sort of that small little funnel that's been choked in the centre. So there's a, such a small number of people that you can actually sell to. And at the other end of the, the bottom half of the hourglass, you've got, you know, everyday consumers, people who love music, people who want to read books and discover wonderful books in bookshops. They're not getting access to all of the content that the creators are creating. Well, they That's might, kind of roughly mm, it, but I think yeah. you've probably got a better way to explain it. But I just want to set up the hourglass so people know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So if you do picture that hourglass shape, um, think about it. You've got, um, so you've got uh, book authors and publishers. They've got to go through Amazon, really, to get to readers. Now, readers are going to be able to to access nearly everything. That's not really the problem. The access is not necessarily the problem. The problem is that because you've got to go through Amazon and Audible, which is owned by Amazon, um, and and because if you don't go through them, because they control so much of the audience, it's just not feasible for them to make any money whatsoever. That provides the conditions for, for Amazon to extract, you know, more than what is a fair share for the service that it's providing. And in fact, in the case of Amazon, um, the, the, the contracts are really secretive and, and, you know, maybe we'll get to this a little bit later, but it looks like they might be taking, you know, up to 90% of how much, um, is, is, is being paid for use of of an audiobook from an independent writer, which is just extraordinary. Yeah, we'll break that example down in a moment because I think that's a really frightening one. Mm. Um, so we'll get back to Amazon in a sec. Mm. But I should say as well, it's not mm. we, we talk about this in the book. We use creative labour markets as our way of um, of explaining this phenomenon, but it's not limited to that. Um, we've got you know powerful we've got powerful 
sort of choke points across lots of different industries. And, um, you know, if, if, if you're listening in Australia, we've got these two big supermarkets, Coles and um, Woolworths. Um, they also have their choke points. So if you're a supplier to, to the super, a food supplier, you want to reach, um, consumers in Australia, you've got to go through Coles and Woolies almost certainly. Um, and again, we, we and, and, and there's been lots written about this of the kind of abusive practices, um, and how, how, how those suppliers have been shaken down over time. So there's so many different places that it happens. Yeah, but you focused on the creative industry, and I think I've got this right. You and co-author Corey have explained that it's it's most readily exploited because creatives will create anyway. That's right. Um, and so, mm. you know, we'll write the book because it's an urge. We'll create mm. the song because we just can't help it, right? We have to get it out. Yeah, it's, it. it's a physical, sometimes it's just a physical pain until you give birth to this thing, which is actually how it was with this book for me. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, that does provide the conditions for exploitation. And also, you know, other creative workers, people who work for publishers, for example, they're also being um, exploited, um, you know, really significantly. The, the salaries there are scandalous. But, you know, one of the, and, and, and the way we talk about it in the book is, is we say there are, there are places where people's passion is, is weaponized to facilitate their exploitation. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the publishers have to shake down their workers because they are being shaken down in turn, you know, by companies like Amazon. Um, and they're having to also compete with like behemoth publishers like Penguin Random House, which just is still trying to buy Simon and Schuster as well, become this, you know, complete, um, monolithic creature that, um, has way better economies of scale than everybody else and then is able to, you know, you know compete. Over yeah, 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 even yeah, further. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think if that happens, the world will be effectively down to four major publishers. That's right. That's yeah. right. And from from dozens, um, just you know, a couple of who would have to go. compete, right? They'd mm. have to sort of they'd, they they'd put in option. pictures, mm-hmm. yeah, for an author's book. Um, and now, I mean, the advances um, that authors now receive on books has just dropped dramatically, hasn't it? Like, there are, you know, certainly many cases now where there is zero dollar advance that you don't get any kind of advance against royalties at all. Um, but I don't want people to be thinking, oh, these these you know independent publishers, for example, they're 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 really screwing over authors. They're the problem. They're not making any money either. The economics of of book publishing are absolutely bonkers. This is one of the things that I kind of love most about the industry is that it's full of completely economically irrational individuals who just dream and who care so much about books and stories yeah. and getting them out to people. Um, but economically, the whole thing doesn't make any sense except for the very biggest companies, the very biggest authors. And, and, and That's right. Um, but these publishers are getting screwed over once mm. again also by Amazon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of these big yeah. um, digital companies mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are causing the problems. Um, and of course, once they've got that power and they can then lobby governments to keep mm. it that way. That's one of the other things they get to do mm-hmm. is they just ensure. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the terminology is, is they lock in customers, but mm-hmm. they also lock in the creative. So we're all locked into this system. That's right. We can't escape it. We can't buck it or at least 
the first half of your book suggests that uh, oh. we then get to solutions at the, well, in the second half. Of yeah, the book. I would say uh, uh, this for, for, for people who heard that went, oh no, I don't want I don't want to read a, another one of those books that just talks about how how shit everything is. Um, this is not that book because we do spend yes the, the first half describing the problem and 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 trying to persuade you that the problem is not that creators don't work hard enough or that there's not enough copyright. The problem is that we've got this excessive corporate concentration that um, is allowing other people to unfairly extract value from their work. But then the whole second half of the book is really hopeful. It's detailed, shovel-ready solutions, the kinds of things that we can do to actually widen Mm. these choke points out and start to affect change. We'll get to that in a minute. I want you actually to explain what monopsony is Uh as opposed to Uh what a monopoly is because that's a really big part of your book and it's a really big part of this locked-in choke point thing. Thank you for letting me talk about that because I know I know it's you're busting not, too. I, I don't no, want you to go this. And it's also it's not it's not a fun word to say. It's not a fun word to read. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you know there's so little understanding about it. But it's really really important that we understand this concept. Um, and Corey and I are determined to make it sexy. So let me have a crack at that. So we know about monopoly. It's where a seller has a lot of power over buyers. So if we're still talking about Amazon, um, that's where Amazon has a lot of power over the the customers um, you know, for for books and other consumer goods. But Amazon's also a very powerful buyer. Okay. And that's what monopsony is. It's where you've got, and and technically we're often talking about oligopsony, which is where you've got a couple of really powerful buyers. I'm not even going to go there. Let's just call it yes, monopsony. It simple. Uh, so simple. Um, but that's where you, know, you look at Amazon and it's a really powerful buyer in its interactions with publishers and authors, right? Now, monopsony is much more dangerous than monopoly, even though we have less sort of less knowledge of it. And one reason for that is that it accrues at much lower market concentrations. So a, a buyer, when they've only got eight or ten percent of the market, can really squeeze their their suppliers and their workers. Um, and and we saw that with Amazon, you know, right when it was you know first flexing its muscles after it really had just started to take over the the trade book market in in the United States, they set out they created something called the Gazette project, mm. which is exactly what it sounds like. You know how on the African savannah, cheetahs uh, go after the, um, they, they find a herd of gazelles and they go after the weakest one. That's exactly what Amazon set out to do with publishers, find the weakest ones, shake them down for more and more margin because they knew that those publishers had no choice but to go through Amazon. And one of the Melville House resisted. Yeah, this is a small publisher in the US, yeah, right? Yeah, but you know, not that, not that small, but yes, yes, mm. a small independent scrappy publisher um, but not a micro-publisher by any means. And um, wh- as soon as they resisted, Amazon just removed all the buy buttons from their books and the Amazon sales just disappeared. Now, at that time, Amazon only made up, I think, 8% of Melville House's sales. But without that 8%, like there was no substitute buyer for that 8%. And without that 8%, it was no longer feasible for them to stay in business. That's how razor-thin the margins can be. And so Melville House just caved. 
And so we can see from that the danger of this and we can extrapolate from that given how much more powerful Amazon and all of these other companies we talk about, the big three record labels which control almost 70% of the world's recorded music and also own the big three music publishers which control almost 60% of the, the world's song rights, you know, Spotify that controls the streaming markets, the big four um, Hollywood talent agencies, you know, who, who control Hollywood talent um, and so on and so forth. We see how incredibly dangerous this is. And the other reason monopsony is really dangerous is because antitrust remedies, the traditional ones, which are like breaking companies up or getting them to pinky swear they won't do anything bad if you let them merge, yeah. they already work pretty poorly with regard to monopoly, but they're even less effective when it comes to monopsony. So that's another reason why this is really dangerous. And antitrust laws have been weakened considerably over the last couple of decades decades by governments who have been convinced by these large corporations to not go down that track any further with legislation. Yeah, we've got a combination of um, laws on the books that are like not bad to quite good that are just not being enforced, um, as well as, you know, the actual weakening of laws. And um, and this is the combination that has sort of led us to this point where, you know, we've got these companies that are actually in some ways, you know, in, in some cases more powerful than than national governments now. Um, and, and when you look at, you know, even the United States, you know, which has plenty of muscle to flex, and sometimes these companies just refuse to even show up to congressional hearings, you yeah, know, wow. just this kind of extraordinary, you know, power struggle that happens when you've got companies that have got, you know, are bringing in revenues that are equivalent to the GDP of some nations um, and just don't think that the the rule should apply to them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a very locked-in scenario. Mm-hmm. As you explain, I think it'd be very familiar to people um, who are aware of these big conglomerates, these big tra- multinationals like Monsanto, who controls the seed market, you know, what we get to eat and the quality of the food that we eat. Um, I mean, it's happened across all kinds of industries. And I think you refer to a term called chickenization. Mm-hmm. Um, these, you know, these lock, locking techniques, they're now being applied to things like live music, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you can actually give a tangible example. Live music, I think, is a really good example of how um, these locked in chickenization um, processes work. Because I think if people are listening, they probably want to get a yeah. little bit of a feel for how it might be affecting them. And maybe actually, Taylor Swift, is that a good entry point? The whole Ticketmaster debacle, is that a good entry point for this? Taylor Swift appears in our book a surprising number of times. She's baller. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so chickenization describes this phenomenon where like all aspects of a market uh, are taken over and that's what we've seen with Live Nation. Um, I'll mention as well. And for anyone listening, Live Nation, and Mm. I should say I actually was booked to do a tour with them just as COVID hit, um, and people who who followed that whole debacle would would be familiar with how many times I had to try to rebook it, blah blah blah. But they're a huge touring company. Um, they exist all around the world, and so the, most of the live acts that come into Australia or the UK or whatever, they're toured by Live Nation. Yeah, yeah. So so they they don't just do, um, handle the tours; they control the biggest venues in the world. They manage artists. Um, and among other things, they also bought Ticketmaster. Now, um, when, uh, when that came up, um, w- you know, when that's, that, that the sale came onto the horizon, artists and record labels and you know, anyone in the creative business was absolutely horrified. Um, because just think about what that means. So Ticketmaster 
um, now has the biggest ticket company in the world and it also controls all these other businesses. So what it means is that it gets a voyeur's view into its competitors' businesses. It can see what tickets are being sold, how fast they're selling, which acts are doing well. You know, so because it might be then, a random new act that's yep, been a random doing new act. the pubs mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. and all of yep. a sudden they got big because they can see Ticketmaster they, they they, They've got the algorithms and they've got the data and they can see, well, hang on a minute, look at this trajectory that those sales for the act are on. So then their management company might be able to come in, swoop in and sign them over the, the manager that has been incubating them over a this time. Or yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can just free freeload on other people's work, um, and uh, you know, just like this, just this extraordinary power that it gives them. And they've also they've um, um, also got a, a, a huge a huge interest in um, in secondary sales for tickets, on which they've got they make far higher fees. Um, the fees on tickets have just gone up to an extraordinary degree, um, and they they are really getting in the way of stopping legitimate fans from from accessing these tickets in favour of, you know, um, sort of surreptitiously assisting the, the scalping market, which is something that we talk about in the book. Um, and, and that's really, you know, one of the one of the, the things that really put this back on the horizon again um, is because the the Taylor Swift uh, tour, her, her fans have struggled so much to get those tickets. And that's, once the Swifties get upset, then you really do start, then you start getting the regulators, <laughs> start getting the regulators' attention. And they are indeed decided that they're going to look at Live Nation again. Much of what you're talking about is about exposing what's happening to the content industry, the creatives. Um, many, you know, people listening are, are creatives in one way or another. You also do make the point it's happening in all kinds of industries. I think let's go back to the Amazon example. Um, I think you've got a couple of examples in the books that show how they choke and strangle um, authors. Can you share an example that gives an, an a bit, bit of a feel for how that industry is working? Let me talk about Audible Gate. So Audible is Audible Gate. Audible okay. Gate. So Audible's owned. My God, by... you're touching on everything I've done. I've written a book for Audible. <laughs> I have, you know, do deals with different publishers, and I know the impact of everything you're talking about. I've worked with Live Nation. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of there's but this so many exactly this exactly shows this exactly shows the issue because you've got no choice but to go through these companies, right? That's why you've worked with all totally. of them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A 
Um, so um, Audible Gate is, I think, one of the most enraging stories in the book. Um, some of you will have heard of uh, heard about it, but many more of you should have heard about it. Um, I hadn't. I've got to yeah, confess. Yeah. yeah. No, it's this extraordinary story. Um, so, so what happened is that you know a few years ago a lot of independent authors were sort of starting to notice that their royalties were going down in really strange ways because um, it seemed like audiobooks, you know, were still really flourishing, but they, they, they were seeing like massive declines in sales. Um, and one of them, you know, a, a few of them thought something was up. One of them in particular, Susan May, um, and she thought it might have something to do with returns. Because Audible had this really, and still does, have this really generous returns policy. And if you use their books, you might have noticed that, um, um, and they do it less now, I can tell you, but they used to do this a lot. You'd finish the book and they were just like, oh, do you want to return this? So you'd get an email. Or you you would pop up in your app, you would get an email, it would be advertised as one of the features of your membership. So this was only available to ongoing Kindles, um, sorry, Audible subscribers. But you could just return the book, no questions asked. Right. Like a library. Like a library, right? And now I think, you know, it, it was in some places it suggested sort of like it was a satisfaction guarantee, but, you know, people would go on to the, 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 the support chat and say, oh, is it only if only if I didn't like it or whatever? And the support people were like, no, 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 whatever you want, just return it if you want to return it. So they were really encouraging this. But what people didn't know is that Audible was then clawing back the whole royalty from the, the author whose book it was. Right. right? Um, so they weren't just refunding and taking – copying the blow as Amazon That's and right. going, mm-hmm. they were passing on that yep. return yep. loss to the author. That's right. So you could have them. you could have had the book right on your on your device for you know months or a year. You've listened to it the whole way through, loved even it. several times. You loved it. You could still return it, and the author would still have to pay. So it was this extraordinary thing, and they, they knew this wasn't right because they were hiding it. So um, the way that they reported um, sales is they would report net sales. So that would be sales after returns are taken out. Very, very simple to have a separate column for sales returns and then here's your net amount. But they didn't want people to see what's going on because they would they were saying, okay, your net sales, you sold five books. Actually, you sold 25 books today, but 20 books that you'd sold other times have been returned, right? And so you've got a net of five. Um, and the reason, the only reason this came to light is because there was one day where there was this glitch and three weeks of returns data was processed on a single day. So, so people saw hundreds or even thousands of books being returned. And so like the veil was lifted and authors worked out what was going on. Um, and so they, they mobilized that, that the fact that there was that sort of light shone into the darkness is what allowed this um, amazing campaign which was led by Susan May, um, to, to get started and to demand change from Amazon. Um, it's a notoriously secretive company and it knows that you know, information is power, knowledge is power, mm. and it doesn't want creators to have it for exactly that reason. But um, they, they mobilised, they pushed really hard and they did manage to get some sort of small but like important reforms from, from Amazon. Now um, there's a, a much shorter time where um, if, if, if the, you, you can't hold on to the book for a year and then return it and have the, the, the royalties called back. It's a much shorter time than that. And Amazon will cop it, um, sorry, Audible will cop it, you know, more often and the author will get to keep the royalty. And I think they've reined back, the, for that reason, they've reined back the mm. policy a bit as well. But we see why they Amazon, um, Audible was doing this. It's because 
they wanted to lock those subscribers in. Um, and so that's why if you, you pay your monthly subscription fee and you get a credit, Audible doesn't care, you know, whether the, the author gets paid for that. They only care about getting your monthly fee and keeping you happy and keeping you like locked in ongoing. Because if they manage to do that, then the publishers and the authors have got no choice but to go through you as well. And oh. that's how you have the conditions for this shakedown. All right. And so, um, another extraordinary part of this story is there was this other woman, uh, Colleen Cross, who was a former forensic accountant turned oh, writer yes, of financial yeah. fraud thrillers. Um, she sort of... Perfect person to perfect screw over, person. right? <laughs> well, look, she found herself sort of unwittingly in the plot of one of her own novels. So she started helping with uh, Susan with the campaign and she was thinking... Well, if Audible's doing this to us on returns, what are they doing to us on royalties? And this is where we get to that bit I mentioned earlier on. She started looking at the contracts and poring over the royalty statements and said, hang on a minute. If, if Amazon, if Audible is actually paying us the way that they say that they're supposed to pay us in the contracts, the numbers don't add up at all. And so when she looked at that and, and, um, and this is where we get to, you know, these authors are self-financed. These are independent authors who are self-financing their audiobooks, you know, often five or 10,000 US dollars to create a, a good quality one up to, you know, 20, 40,000. And it can take several weeks to record yeah, and the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a huge endeavor, a huge investment. But although the authors are paying all of that, Audible, um, uh, by, by Colleen Cross's estimation, is sometimes taking you know, up to close to ninety percent um, of of the, wow. the 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 money that's coming in. Right? If Amazon was required to make information available about you know the the revenues that come in for use of works, you know how they're being used, like how many sales there are, how many returns there are, um, how your royalty is calculated, they wouldn't have got away with this for so long. They wouldn't have stolen what. What, what cross estimates it to be hundreds of millions of dollars at least. And they wouldn't have been able to use that to sort of do this scorched earth approach to subsidize the, the system so that nobody else can come in and really compete meaningfully in the audiobook market, right? Mm, which, which is then, what provides the conditions for them to shake everyone down in the first place. There's a really great quote, I can't remember who said it, um, in your book, if you can only sell your product to a single entity, it's not your customer, it's your boss. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I know as an author, I have very much felt like that, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that explains it really, really well. I think um, there's one other thing I just want to bring up. You mentioned earlier that the, the way the music industry works and mm. essentially the way things have choked down is that we've got three major record labels. Um, 70% of music is produced by these three major record labels um, and I think one of them owns Spotify. Is that right? Well, so they all, got, Spotify own- they all got equity stakes in Spotify as a condition of Spotify being able to start up. And so this is also really interesting, right? Um, we can see that th- those record labels control, like I said, um, almost 70% of the world's recorded music. And because copyright lasts so long, even though those labels are not as essential as they used to be, you know, because the um, music, recorded music has always been a choke point market, right? Yes. It's just the question of where is the choke point and how many people are shaking you down. Um, but they controlled those those global song rights. Um, and, you know, they last for a really long time, which means they got, because you need their permission to, to have their catalogs, that gave them the ability to control what the streaming market looks like. And so people know that streaming doesn't work very well for most artists, but there's less awareness that the reason it works like that is because it was designed by the majors 
for the majors. From the outset. And one of the things that they got was a huge equity stake in the company, which gave them a huge conflict of interest. Because think about it, um, when Spotify went to do its um, IPO to, to, to debut on the stock market as a public company, the record label's interest was in ensuring that it achieved maximum value there because that would maximize the value of their stake. It's it's really mind-blowing and I can't help but think, you know, I'm not a musician. It's it's one of these choke point capitalist structures I'm not involved in. Um, although, you know, Spotify obviously hosts um, uh, podcasts as well. But um, if I listen to playlists, you know, as opposed to a full album, you know, is, is that affecting things at all? Is there a part to play there? Well, definitely. What we're really seeing with Spotify now is it trying to create its own choke points. And one of the ways that it's doing that, you know, it, it's it's in a it's been in a really tricky situation because the majors have so much power, and so Spotify wants to make it so that it has more power. Um, and one of the ways it's doing that is by pushing playlists. And um, a lot of us listen to them. Um, it's you know, it, it can be lovely as a way to discover new music. Listen to Discover Weekly, where the algorithm tells you, oh, you listen to the other stuff, maybe you'll like this. Um, or you know, you go to Rap Caviar and find you know, what's the hottest what's the hottest new sort of hip-hop out at the moment. Um, But the thing is, when we use these playlists, we are outsourcing to Spotify the decision about what to put in our ears, all right? And so we are dismediating the artist. So we're not choosing based on the artist, we're choosing based on the playlist. Um, And that that means that Spotify becomes ever more important to discoverability and it it playlisting artists ever more important to them breaking through. And that's the dream of everybody, right? Uh, Like I said, it's a winner-takes-all market and every artist fervently believes they are going to be the one that, that, that breaks through and does become the next Taylor. Now, almost nobody does, but the hope is the thing that is being sold here. Yeah. And so one of the things that Spotify is doing is saying, well, look, we, we know you want to break through. We really want to help you do that. Um, we know that you don't have any money because uh, we don't pay you anything and nobody pays you anything. But tell you what, we'll, we'll, we're on your side. So we're going to help you out by offering to, to give you more chance of being playlisted and sort of better discoverability of the algorithm. Um, and, and all you have to do is just accept a lower royalty. All right. And so you can see again what's happening here. It's another device. The, the artists are saying, well, look, Half of almost nothing is still almost nothing. It's not really costing me very much to accept this. And I've got a bigger chance. My hope, my hope is going to be fed. And I really, really, really want to break through. So I'll take this deal. But then again, we're putting a lower and lower ceiling um, on terms of, in, in terms of what people are actually getting paid. But then the fact is we don't have to put up with it. And there are a lot of things that we can do to change it. I want to get to that. There is a, one other liberating bit that I read in the book that the surveilling stuff, the surveillance stuff that mm. Google and Facebook do. And particularly around news and, yeah, and advertising. Yeah. That's it. Right. So it, they work out what our interests are and then that sort of determines what ads we get served. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to, to read that it actually doesn't work. It doesn't work particularly <laughs> well at all. The advertisers yeah. are being duped in all of this. Absolutely. Look, Google and Facebook are not actually that great at, at, at selling. So they're promising magic beans, right, um, where, you know, the fact that they've, they've um, uh, compiled these incredibly creepy dossiers about all of us and what we like and don't like, um, they're, they're, they're selling the idea that that will allow um, 
um, ads to be way more effective than, than other kinds of ads. Um, but what they're actually really good at selling is just that it's snake oil. They're selling that idea, but not actually the reality. Because what we are increasingly seeing is that those ads don't work particularly better than, than context-based ads. You know, we, we now know that if, if you go to an online news site and you're reading a story about, um, a new fitness craze, an ad for a gym there is going, you know, without knowing anything about you, is going to be as effective as an ad for a gym that's been given to you based on all of this creepy stuff yeah. that they've 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 um, found out by spying on you extensively over the entire internet, right? Um, and what's really exciting about that for news organisations is that it used to be that they would get almost a hundred cents in the advertising dollar. That's gone down to like in some cases less than fifty cents in the dollar. Um, but if they move to context based ads, they can they can get back reclaim to reclaim it, reclaim it, and be less dodgy. And be way less dodgy and like less creepy, guys. Please stop spying us on us on the internet. Yeah, well, slight silver lining there. Um, all right, well, that's a really good note for us to move on to what we can do about this. And it's the second half of your book. Um, it's substantial. And, you know, it really, though, is about showing how we need to go about creating some systemic change mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. It's not like we can, it's not like with the climate movement, we can recycle our way to fixing the planet. Um, individuals, we can't do all that much as consumers of these products, um, but there are some really good movements that are happening. And I think if people hear about it, they will be inspired and want to make sort of decisions to get involved. Can you give some examples? Yeah, absolutely. And in thinking about this, we're really inspired by um, the law professor, Jamie Boyle, who, who has this parable about the birth of the ecology movement. Um, and he says that, you know, back in the day, there were people who were really concerned about, you know, endangered owls and people who were really concerned about the ozone layer. But those weren't obviously parts of the same fight, right? You're concerned with charismatic nocturnal avians, I'm concerned <laughs> with the chemical composition of the upper atmosphere. Like what have these things got to do with each other? Um, but then once it clicked and people saw, no, 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 this is all about, this is all about the environment and about the planet. And those groups saw that they were part of the same fight and they came to unite in a way that has allowed us to, to have more effective change. Um, we want to do something similar here with the movement against choke point capitalism that where we see that, you know, this excessive corporate concentration, it is really hurting artists in the ways that we've been talking about, but it's really um, hurting everybody who works for an overly powerful employee, uh, uh, employer, you know, um, Uber, but, you know, all of these companies that um, that control their markets and use that power to shake down their workers and shake down their suppliers. Um, so, you know, if, 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 if you're worried about, um, if you're worried about the fact that, you know, glasses are too expensive now because, you know, this one company, Luxottica, has taken over like the whole world market for lenses and frames and almost every part of it that you can think of, or um, you're worried about, you know, the, you're a farmer or a supplier to, to major supermarkets and you can't get fairly paid or paid on time, or you're worried that, you know, your your favourite creators are living in penury and like, have no prospect of any kind of retirement and can't make as much stuff that, you know, you want to enjoy. All of this is part of the same fight. Um, and so we, 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 we can see some really, um, really, inspiring, hopeful examples in the book about the ways that we can affect change. 
one of the groups that we worked with pretty closely while we were writing it was the Writers Guild of America mm. um, and particularly the president, David Goodman, who's written like for a number of incredible TV shows like Golden Girls and Star Trek, Futurama. Um, he was the president of the Writers Guild at the time where they realized that if they didn't take action against the, the big four Hollywood talent agencies, that eventually writers would just be locked out altogether um, and have no power at all. Um, and and th- those, those talent agencies had basically set up all of these conflicts of interest that meant that they were, in some cases, earning more than their writers for um, the, the work that the writers were doing instead of the standard 10%, Is which it, it used to, to be. Is this big writer's strike that exactly. happened a number of years ago? No, yeah. no, no. So that's a, so, well, I think you might be thinking of um, the earlier strike, the 2007-8 strike. This is one that just happened when we were writing the book a couple of years ago. Um, they, they created a new code of conduct and said, no more of these conflicts of interest. And then they said, if you don't sign up to it, we won't work with you. And then in a single week, 7,000 Hollywood writers fired their agents. En masse. En masse, right. Um, transparency rights as well are really critical. We saw that in the Audible Gate example. If you shine a light into darkness, right, we can affect change. Um, and so we need to have transparency rights like they've recently introduced in the EU in the Digital Single Market Directive that gives creators, artists and performers the rights to find out how their works are being used, what kind of money is coming in from them and how their pay is being calculated. We need to reform contract law as well. You know, it's an absolute no-brainer. You should would be able to find out, you know, how how your pay is calculated, you know, the same way that you've got minimum wages in other creative fields, you should at the very minimum be able to find out, you know, you know how this obscure royalty check came to be. We can also ask for for copyrights instead of just, you know, blindly accepting policies that, you know, give more copyright. We can demand copyright policies that actually support creators, yeah. right? Instead of just allowing them to be used as stalking horses to mask other people's economic interests. And like, think about it. If, you're, if your kid is being bullied at the school gate, shaken down every day for their lunch money, you don't respond to that by giving them more lunch money, right? Yeah. Um, but that's what we've done with copyrights. Like, oh, you're not making any money from your work. Let's give you more copyright. But that just means there's more, more for these predatory choked. companies to take, mm. right? And then, you, you know, even if the bullies went and created like a global campaign saying, won't somebody think of the hungry school children, we still wouldn't respond to that so by giving them more lunch money. So there needs to be change. Yeah. But, um, and then there needs to be sort of these other movements that mm. get the system to shift really mm-hmm. directly because yeah. um, the artists all strike or, you know, mm. sack their agents uh, in, in, in one fell swoop. But it seems like um, the really critical point here is to have these guilds and these unions because without them you can't get that information across, you can't rally together and or the alternative is to have a Taylor Swift come out and do what she did with Apple that time, mm. or Prince many, many years ago when, you know, he stuck it up to the, the record mm. label and, and changed his name to a symbol mm-hmm. um, to get around things there. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the case? Is it, is it unions or a really big talent doing something dynamic? All of these things, you know, okay. so we need all of these things, right? So we've found that we're pretty far down this route now, you know, um, and it's not that there is any one magic bullet, right? Mm. But if you're going to eat an elephant, you need to do it one bite at a time. Let's picture like lots of little bites all over the place to start to, to start to affect change. Um, and, and, and to what we're, we're really, we're really talking about here is to, to start doing the things that are in our power. And that includes like demanding that our policymakers and our regulators do better, 
right? Demand yeah. that they, um, that they give us laws and, um, and, and policies that are not about benefiting big business, but that are about widening these choke points out and making it easier for, for workers to secure a fair share of their value, of the value from their work, whether it's in the creative industries or any other industry, because that's the way in which we're going to be changing this. And that, you know, as we incrementally affect change and, you know, we start to free up time and energy that we can use towards fighting the rest. You know, and that's something that's something that's I think underappreciated is that we are so exhausted, right, from the way in yeah. which that we live life at the moment. The idea of fighting just sometimes just feels so impossible. We just need to sit down in front of Netflix and we need to just just chill because we need to get up and fight tomorrow. We need to deal with the email situation. <laughs> we need to just deal with the, the constant workload of dumb shit. Um, that, you know, is raining down on all of us all of the time, okay? And so changing that as well so that we've got the energy for the fight and we've got the energy, you know, to to work for those around us. So it's about building connection and community, changing the conditions in which we work as much as we can to, to free up some of that energy so that we can fight for a better life and we can then change the conditions and we can have it. That's a rally call for just about every movement out there. I was putting that through the lenses as, as a climate activist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is part of the climate fight, right? Yeah. If, if we if we if we reduce corporate concentration so that we we do share more fairly in the value of our work, again, that's that's money and energy that goes towards that. Um, but also, it means you know when also when you you have these conditions that I was talking about, um, which I think this is everything that we need for a better world comes down to connection and community. Um, but that's also going to be the thing that saves the planet because yeah. when you're strongly connected and you're grounded and you, f- you give and you, and, and you feel love, you don't need to go out and buy so much stuff. You know, the, the, the fact that so many of us feel empty inside, that is a feature of neoliberal capitalism. Um, we're supposed to feel empty inside so that we fill that with ever more production and ever more consumption. And it's meant to leave us exhausted so we don't fight. It. Exactly. That's all of the things. So this is all the one fight. It's the fight for a good life, right, Um, which I am absolutely positive we can have. Uh, We just have to start moving towards it and we have to believe that we can get there. It is exponential because when you do see the examples of Mm -hmm. it, you do feel enlivened and you get inspired and you get this is what it's meant to be about. Heck yes. Well, I think that's all pretty awesome. I totally agree. The fight is the very thing that will see us land in the good life that we seek as we fumble our way through all of the complexities of the Anthropocene. Rebecca and I actually talked for quite a bit after our official interview ended. She said to me that she loves the fight, and so do I. And whether we're talking climate activism or railing against capitalism or defending democracy, really it's all the same fight, the fight to preserve the best bits of our humanity and our connection to each other and and to this one wild and precious life always. I think it's very similar to the climate fight, right? So people so often get disheartened that action, real action, needs to be happening at the systemic level. And this often feels so removed and requiring of so much mass collective action, which seems impossible to coordinate, right, to get everyone marching to the same beat. We want to just believe sometimes that all we have to do is recycle harder to save the planet, 
But as many of you know, this carbon footprint approach where we're told if we all just reduce our individual footprint, it'll fix things, was planted or was confected by the fossil fuel industry to offload their shit onto us. But what if we got really vigilant in seeing that the fact that at all, the choking of creativity, the burning of the planet, demands that we do it together as a wonderful gift? The very fact that it demands community action will return community to us, which is what we really, really want. I reckon it's all wild in a a very secure, kind, sweet and life-enhancing kind of way. As always, please do share this episode. Please take two minutes to head to Spotify or Apple or wherever and rate this show. And please post any comments or feedback over at my Substack newsletter. The details are in the show notes. And just as a shortcut, it's called This Is Precious. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.